by pure serendipity, Earl happened to have met up with, you know, Bill Monroe and all those people and all of those things mixed in a certain way. There's a million combinations that could have happened that I'm sure would be amazing, but it happened to be this one. And, and I, I really appreciate that specific job that the banjo has in that type of bluegrass. The other instruments can't do what the banjo does. So when the banjo solo comes up, I want to make sure I'm doing the thing that's special to the banjo. What's up, everybody? Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. This is your good banjo picking pal, Keith Billick, and we are staring down February here, which if, if you are up here in Michigan like I am or various other northern states or other cold areas of the world, you know that this is the time of year where the cabin fever sets in and it can be a, a dark, dreary place if you don't uh, have something to keep your spirits up. And fortunately, I have just the thing to raise everyone's banjo-playing spirits. February 11th through 13th is the 6th Banjo Summit, which is an online three-day banjo workshop aimed at teaching accessible techniques. It adds color to your traditional playing or takes you way beyond bluegrass. And regardless of your favorite styles, the Banjo Summit will expand your expertise and inspire countless new ideas. I can personally vouch for this. Each Banjo Summit gives me probably a full year's worth of cool ideas and inspiring things to work on. And this is all available for $250, and there are scholarships available. And perhaps the best thing about Banjo Summit is the amazing faculty. Listen to this. this uh, the faculty for this upcoming Banjo Summit includes Noam Pichelny, Kristen Scott Benson, B.B. Bownis, Wes Corbett, Bill Evans, Adam Larrabee, Jamie Stone, and Joe Troop, with performances by John Bullard, Kaya Cater, and Joe Troop. And... Perhaps the other best thing is that all these classes and the tons of tablature that comes with them are available even after the weekend, so you can access those anytime. So check that out at banjosummit.org, and I hope to see you all there. Do you want to know what else inspires me and gets me through the winter? It's my beautiful, talented, smart patrons of the podcast. I very literally could not keep this podcast going if it were not for those of you who went to patreon.com slash banjo podcast and signed up to contribute just a few bucks a month to help support the show. And I always appreciate those of you who do that this month or this episode, rather, we have a special patron to recognize that is Ken Norkin. Ken, thank you so much for your generous support of the podcast. Like I already said, but I'll, I'll say it again. I could not do it without you. And uh, thanks for being a part of the show. Uh, once again, patreon.com slash banjo podcast to learn how to become a supporter yourself. Today's featured guest is Eli Gilbert. Eli is a fantastic player in his own right. He's performed with such acts as Dale Ann Bradley, Chris Jones and the Night Drivers, Alan Bybee, and many others. But 
He is probably the best known at this point for his extremely high quality and educational YouTube video series. Not only are these videos a goldmine of banjo information and music, Eli just always has a knack for taking banjo topics, and, and I've been playing for 20 years. I've thought about this stuff. I, I host a banjo podcast for crying out loud, and he can explain things in ways that I, I catch myself thinking I've never thought about it like that, but he, he has a way of breaking it down into simple, easy to understand concepts and does a great job of presenting those. So it's, it's no surprise that he was able to impart some good uh, wisdom during this interview and offers some great insight on how he thinks about bluegrass and banjo playing and learning the banjo. So here it is. Enjoy this interview with Eli Gilbert. So Eli, thank you for plowing through the weariness of the last day of a week of, of IBMA. It's, I'm shocked that we're even maybe going to speak complete sentences to each other. It's truly impressive, and, and I'll give us both a pat on the back about that. Thanks for... It, it's been really cool getting to see you in person. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing. We've known each other for probably, I guess, a little over a year even at this point. Yeah. Uh, and right. uh, I feel like I'm meeting so many people here at IBMA that that you already know that I already know in a way it's a very yes. strange thing isn't it it really is yeah <laughs> it is and uh yeah and as the week goes on and we all get more and more tired staying up late jamming you know the entire experience becomes more and more surreal right but everything blends together it does and then to add to the deja vu all over again effect this isn't even the first time I've interviewed you yes so I imagine there will be some overlap. And to to explain, you, you were uh, published in Banjo Newsletter, and I was the one that that got to interview you for that. So I imagine there, like I said, there there's going to be some common questions, but that's okay. I've practiced now, yeah, so I might <laughs> I might have better answers. All right. Well, get us started. Uh, where are you from, and how did you become a banjo player? So I'm from Maine, from North Yarmouth, Maine, which is just north of uh, Portland. People usually know where Portland is, so. That helps. And I didn't grow up playing banjo. Uh, I grew up playing guitar, played a lot of rock music, a lot of jazz actually uh, was the biggest part of my you know, music playing before the banjo until I was 20. And when I was 20, my dad took me to the Thomas Point Beach Bluegrass Festival, which is about 30 minutes from my house. Never knew about it, but it was always there. And uh, it, was a, it was a great lineup that I didn't, I didn't know who any of these people were, but I saw J.D. Crow in the New South, Seldom Seen, Sierra Hull was there. I was there one day and I saw all those bands and it was great. I thought it was very cool. And they said, make sure you're here tomorrow because Tony Rice is going to be here. Uh-huh. And I said, well, I don't really know who that is. So I didn't show up the next day. <laughs> and therefore, I've never seen Tony Rice live or I never did see him live. But um, that's, that's how new it was at the time. But it was that, it was that festival uh, where I kind of said, you know, maybe as a, as a side hobby, I could pick up this, uh, this other instrument. And you said you were 20? When that happened? I was 20, yeah. Okay. Was there any, uh, among all those great performers that you got to see, was there one that you that you think really sealed the deal for you in, in terms of being interested in the banjo? You know, it's, it's interesting. I, when I was at that festival, I don't think I thought 
too much about the banjo from the perspective of things I've been inspired by. I'd love to say that I heard J.D. Crow and it was like this lightning, you know, yeah. struck by lightning moment. Angels singing to you or something. Right? Yeah, exactly. I remember really liking the sound of that band because, you know, it was with that band with Ricky Wasson and, and right. they play great songs. It's, it's great. I didn't, I don't remember much about hearing Crow at the time. I remember hearing Seldom Seen, their harmonies really interesting. You know, they would end all of their songs with these like really extensive vocal harmony tags and everything. Oh, yeah. I remember seeing Sierra Hall and uh, some really complex, amazing music was being made. But I didn't really think about the banjo then. It was actually that my dad plays guitar. Uh, and I was, like, I was thinking maybe I could play bluegrass, but I don't want to play guitar if my dad already plays guitar. So I'll, I'll do something different. Oh, okay. Uh, and so kind of randomly, I just said, if I'm going to you know, play music with my dad and playing bluegrass, then I'll, just, I'll play the banjo. I'll do something different from what he's doing so we can play together. That makes sense. It, it might be too much of a generalization, but I think there's a, a narrative that people who are already into jazz might look down at bluegrass because it's, in a way, it's simpler and maybe not as interesting to people who are, are used to this uh, relatively esoteric, by comparison, type of music. But you must have still found it really interesting, obviously. Do, do you have any way of explaining what it was about bluegrass that was able to, to pull you away from your, your jazz focus? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember uh, before ever really thinking about the banjo or bluegrass, I was actually a pretty big fan of Big La Fleck and the Fleck Tone specifically, and the Punch Brothers, and basically anything Chris Thiele had been involved in. Okay. But I didn't really look at it, obviously, from the context of bluegrass, because it you know, if you actually haven't listened to bluegrass, you'd never really come to the conclusion separately that Bela Fleck and the Fleck Tones right. is somehow related to that, or even the Punch Brothers. It's only with the context of having heard everything that came before it that you could see that it has this uh -huh. longer tradition. So, so I was already a fan of these other things. And what I found was that when I did hear music that was more closely tied to traditional bluegrass, which then led me to traditional bluegrass in some ways. Gateway bands. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, right. Which which bands like Seldom Seen, interestingly enough, you know, is a kind of a perfect gateway band into the past because at the, at a time they they were progressive bluegrass. Um, Who was playing banjo with the Seldom Seen at the time? Would have still been uh, Ben Eldridge. Oh, great. Yeah, cool. yeah, which is great. And I got to meet him a couple years later at a the first time I played at a festival uh, and got to talk to him a little bit, which was which was nice just to have have met him while he was still playing with the band. Yeah, um, very cool. But uh, yeah, there was something about about that sound and then. And, and then, you know, starting to actually hear J.D. Crow in the New South and then moving further back, you know, Flatten Scruggs and all that music. Where the reality is for anyone studying jazz, people associate that with complicated melodies, complicated chords. And then on top of that, of course, improvising in a somewhat complicated way. But all Western music is still generally based harmonically around these really simple chord movements. It's a lot of one, four, five, honestly. Yeah. And it's, you know, if you just, the further back you go, you know, all the way to Bach, it's still one, four, five. Of course, that's like one very specific, narrow trajectory of uh, the history of music. And that, but that's yeah. kind of where we've landed in terms of music in, in America, in terms of pop music, country music, all these things. So I think what I was hearing was something that really told me what the, the feeling of, you know, Western harmony is in a way where I could really hear what the the, the base of it is like the, hmm. the you know, the, the root story because I had been studying jazz but hadn't grown up with folk music or something like that. Yeah. I was playing this this complicated music, but I wasn't really hearing the the strong one, four, five of, okay. you know, all the things you are still by Starlight, which is there. I mean, it, you know, it's changing keys and all these things, but 
the uh, more complicated progressions are really just more complicated ways of saying one four five or one five one or whatever it is in terms of you know if you want to call it the national member system or whatever it, it is. Take some practice to hear it. That's for sure. Yeah, and I there was just something so pleasing about hearing music that way, where it was just so clear. Mm. The, all these more complicated things that I had heard, it's like that's actually kind of the essence of what some of these songs are saying. Yeah. These more complicated songs, you know. So you hear that movement from a one chord to a four chord. Right. Uh, is is just an incredibly pleasing thing to hear, and and that happens in a lot of interesting ways in different styles of music. But in bluegrass, it sounds like you're playing a G chord and then you play a C <laughs> yeah, chord, and right. there's something really cool about that. Yeah, the n no doubters. Yes. Cool. Well, you took it seriously enough. How long after that did you decide to enroll for bluegrass school? Yeah. So uh, that was maybe a year later. Okay. Yeah. It, so I, you were still pretty green with yes. it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So. It was kind of this circuitous, circuitous route where I um, was studying jazz, and for a lot of reasons, uh, I just wasn't going to go back to that school. I had had an injury, you know, which prevented me from playing guitar, mm. and then I ended up playing trumpet for a, a while. You know, it was, it was kind of like treading water, trying to figure out what I should be doing, and and none of these things are working. But I wanted to, you know, play music still. Right. My mom had the idea. Why don't you study bluegrass? And I thought there's no way that there's a way to do that in college. That's that's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and like 30 minutes later, I had applied to ETSU, East Tennessee State. And then a week later, I had enrolled. So this was, you know, a, a very, wow, you know, a very quick decision. And then I went down to Tennessee a couple months later uh, in the fall of that year. And uh, I was very excited about playing the banjo. I was practicing a lot, working really hard at it. Um, and I showed up and I couldn't. I couldn't play a shave and a haircut ending. I couldn't end a song. You know, I knew. Huh. I I had transcribed some stuff because I knew a lot of. You know, I'd been transcribing in jazz for such a long time that my ear was in a place where I could. I could figure out the notes. I had no idea really what I was playing or what I was doing, but I was. You know, I had figured out some yeah. some stuff. So, you know, to someone who heard me play more than three songs, it would be clear that I only knew three songs and one specific way to play those three songs. And that was yeah. it. So I really showed up. Yeah. I really showed up with, with, um, you know, a pretty limited amount of experience within bluegrass or that vocabulary, but, uh, luckily enough, uh, grit and, uh, previous musical experience to, to figure it out eventually, you know, who did you study with when you were there? First teacher I studied with was, uh, Danny Stewart, who is, uh, actually the current bass player in country current, the Navy bluegrass yeah. band. Um, and he had played bass with Larry Stevenson and a bunch of bands um, and a uh, great bass player, but he's also a great banjo player. And uh, him, Brandon Green, who's an amazing banjo player in that area, and as well as uh, Jason Davis, who oh, yeah. uh, played with Junior Sisk for probably over 10 years um, and is currently playing with uh, Dan Tominski. And Jason is kind of on, on the short list for me in terms of influences in, in kind of the modern Scruggs style banjo world. Well, I'd love to hear about that. So, uh, I, I guess two questions about Jason specifically, but I guess it also applies to the, to the other teachers. What do you think were the important things that they were able to teach you that got you up to speed really quickly? And then part B with with Jason in particular, you said he's one of your main influence. I'd love to hear about what it is that you hear in his playing that you think you've adopted or you know learned from. Yeah, sure. So. And this was this was true of a lot of the lessons that I took, whether it was on banjo or guitar. I took a couple of different you know instrument lessons, and it was kind of the same in every case where I had previously had this experience where studying jazz 
to a certain extent, you're trying to figure out why certain things are happening. You're, you're trying to f- categorize things in your mind in a way where if someone shows you a certain lick, mm-hmm. it's not really just that lick. It's actually a sound. It's, it's this, these notes relate to this chord in this way. So if you want to reproduce this sound, then you can think about it in this way. So you can rep- reproduce it later. And with, in other keys. In other keys. Right. And maybe the same lick sounds this way over this chord and another way over another chord. And if you can all keep that all in your mind in a certain way, then you can reproduce that. Of course, you're not just trying to think your way through playing music, but right. eventually that's in your ear because the vocabulary is so huge. Um, and the improvisation, it really gets to the point where you're not strictly just playing the melody and the variations that you might be adding to it get pretty complicated. So there's a lot of kind of asking, okay, what's the story behind this thing that you're showing me, this chord voicing? Why does it have this note in it? Uh-huh. You know, this solo, what is it about this that gives it this sound, that sort of thing. What I found when I went to ETSU was I would ask those kind of questions, like trying to systematize Scrug style in some way uh, uh-huh. that, that ended up not really making sense where I would ask, <laughs> you know, I would learn, uh, I already, I, I showed up knowing this lick, you know, and it was like, I was, I didn't want to know, like, what does that lick mean? But I was like, okay, how, well, how do I, what do I do with that lick? How do I turn that into other things? Like, you know, how do I um, apply that to other chords? Like, what if I want to play that in a different key? All these things that are interesting questions, but don't actually help you understand the discrete vocabulary of bluegrass. Uh-huh. Um, it might be an interesting thing to do on your own as homework. But if you're trying to figure <laughs> out, like, just understand not how to play like Earl, not how to sound exactly like Earl, but just try to understand here's the toolbox that, you know, here's the toolbox that he was using and here is how these things apply and how they, it's really more about just learning material, learning where so-and-so used it and then choosing judiciously where to put that in terms of playing very much within that uh, within that format. It's, it's, yeah. uh, it's kind of a different thing that you're seeking to do. So what I ended up learning was there's so much value in the experiential knowledge of just taking whatever somebody gives you. And, you know, if they say, here's this, and you just learn that because that's what they showed you and you put your hands where they put their hands and you figure out how to do it and you say, okay, I'm going to work on that until it sounds right. And then maybe you don't play that exact lick, but you're just collecting all this information and it doesn't nest, doesn't have to make a whole lot of sense necessarily for it to be a value in the future. You yeah. know, you know, I remember I used to, I took guitar lessons with Wyatt Rice for a short period um, before we just ended up, I just brought my banjo and we just played tunes during our lessons instead. Oh, cool. But uh, I, I was thinking about playing bluegrass guitar and I remember he was showing me stuff and I said, yeah, like, what's that, what's that lick you just played? Like, what is, what is that? And he played it again. I was like, yeah, but like, how do you think about that? Like, what is that? You know, is there other places that you play that? Or is that like a pattern you use? And he's like, oh, well, yeah, well, it goes like this. And he just played it again. <laughs> and that was kind of a light, you know, it was like a, the light bulb went off. And I was like, I'm asking questions when I should just be learning this thing. Yeah. You know, and, and the, the analysis and all of that, it's not that that shouldn't happen. It's just that. I could do that myself later if I really needed to. Uh, but I was coming from outside of a genre and a culture and a community trying to impose the way that I looked at things to figure it out. And if the way that I looked at things was the way to learn it, then I could just learn it myself. And I hadn't learned it myself. Right. So I had to look at it a little bit a different way, you know? Yeah. Sometimes I describe 
bluegrass and, and certainly like the lick method of playing as being like Mad Libs. Yeah. Like yeah, you, yeah. you know you need a noun. Yep. So exactly. pick, pick your noun and, it, and adverb or whatever. Exactly. And what's interesting is, you know, I think it's hard sometimes also for, for people to to think in those terms and then have it become creative and natural, you know, mm-hmm. um, especially if you learn a lick like or or you know, all, all just variations of the same idea. It's basically accomplishing the same thing. But you learn a bunch of variations of that and you learn how Earl did it like this and then Crow did it like this and Ralph did it like this and so and so. And they all kind of, it's impossible to separate them unless your whole goal is to just, you know, list all of these things. But when what ends up happening is when you start to tie these things together, you start playing combinations of these things that other people don't really do or it's interesting. It, it feels less like licks at a certain point. You know, it can feel a lot like licks if I do just. But what I end up really actually playing when I'm just playing is probably more like. It's all in there, but it's just. I'm making these little micro choices because right. I've collected enough of these little licks and I've spent enough time with it, I guess. Um, is that how you think somebody's personal style emerges? You know, we're, we're all working to some extent with the same like raw material, mm-hmm. but maybe the way that you put it in your bag and shook it all up might. Is that how someone's personal style emerges, you think? I, th- I think so, yeah. And, and it kind of depends to what extent you're interested in participating in the in the language of bluegrass as like that's your your playground, you know? Some people come at the banjo and, and there are absolutely no rules and therefore this is kind of a weird thing. But, you know, for instance, if, you know, you want to be in a band that calls themselves a bluegrass band, like to a certain extent, that's part of the deal is that you're, you're, you've decided I'm going to use tools from this toolbox and ones that are somehow associated in that way or something. So, so the individual style to me, uh, can end up being a lot of things. It can either be the, it, the people that you study, you know, like you study Earl a lot, you're going to get certain things like that. It can also be the people that you don't emulate. Um, right. you know, like a good example is like, I've spent basically, uh, all my time, uh, if I'm talking about just the, the early greats, spent a lot of time with Earl, a lot of time with J.D. Crow, not that much time with Sonny Osborne, and not that much time with Ralph Stanley. Yeah. So there's things that are not going to be in my playing, but you could have different combinations of those things. You sure. know? So that's that's interesting. For some people, that's still really limiting because it's, what are we just talking, what are we talking about? Just, you know, picking <laughs> from the creative endeavors of other people and then, yeah. you know, it's a hodgepodge. But I think it also can easily be the way that you personally interpret that stuff because there's no way, no matter how much I study any of these players that I'm, I'm really ever going to sound like them, mm-hmm. um, and which is not the goal. It's, uh, you know, if, if you think about the way Earl played something, you know, as an example, something like, well, just the way that he, he you know, the slide versus hammer-on mm-hmm. thing. You know, if I'm going to play this lick, you know, if it's, if it's Cripple Creek, that's a, that's a slide that's happening here, which hopefully you can hear a little bit of a difference. You can definitely hear between... Earl and Crow, but so Earl would slide, and in general, maybe not on Cripple Creek because Crow really studied Earl, but in general, in situations like that, Crow would be more likely to do a hammer-on and bend it a little more. 
it just sounds a little bit different, right? Yeah. And it's not like Crow decided that because it's, you know, I, I can't imagine there was a lot of thought going into that. It was just people do things slightly differently yeah. and you hear it a little differently. It's the way he tweaked it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, so you end up with little things like that that you do differently. And to the extent that you enjoy being within the arbitrary confines of bluegrass, right. that's kind of a fun thing to play with because you get to either emulate somebody or kind of live in your own world of like your hands don't do exactly the same thing that Earl does. So you, you naturally end up with, with kind of a special thing. Yeah, variation you know? on it. Yeah. Hey folks, it's time for me to introduce you to a brand new Picky Fingers sponsor and that's GHS Strings. Now GHS might be a new sponsor, but uh, they're definitely not new to the string business. They've been making some of the best banjo strings on the market since 1964. They use their proprietary lock twist on the plain steel strings for incredible stability, extra large loops for easy installations on any tailpiece, and a wide range of gauged sets for every player. My personal favorite that I've been using for years is the PF145s, but they do have a lot of options for uh, whatever your preference is. And they're very durable, have a long lifespan, and probably my favorite part is that these things are made right down the street from me in Battle Creek, Michigan. So not only do I think they are the best strings out there, but I can feel good about supporting a local company. And I'm not the only one who thinks very highly of their strings. GHS strings are also used by J.D. Crow, Sonny Osborne, Todd Taylor, Bela Fleck, and a lot more. So go check out what they have to offer at their website, ghsstrings.com. The Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast is proud to be sponsored by Peghead Nation. With Peghead Nation's streaming video courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, upright bass, and ukulele, you'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots music. PegheadNation.com features a great lineup of banjo instruction, with courses including Beginning Banjo with Bill Evans, Bluegrass Banjo with Bill Evans, Clawhammer Banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward-style banjo with Bruce Molsky, The Banjo According to Danny Barnes, and Contemporary Bluegrass Banjo with Wes Corbett. Each course includes high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play with. So what I need you to do is join any of Peghead Nation's video courses and you're going to get your first month's free uh, just by being a Picky Fingers listener. Go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code PICKYFINGERS at checkout. That's all one word, all lowercase. And once again, that gets you your first month free at pegheadnation.com. The Picky Fingers podcast is also sponsored by Elderly Instruments, which is the world's most trusted source for new, used, and vintage fretted instruments. We all know how cool it is to be able to support the locally owned mom and pop businesses rather than going to the big box stores. Well, with Elderly Instruments, you're getting a place that's been family owned since 1972, located in Lansing, Michigan, but they do ship worldwide. However, shopping at Elderly Instruments doesn't mean a compromise in quality. They have a vast selection of acoustic and electric guitars, banjos, ukuleles, mandolins, and all the accessories and books you might need. They have a world-renowned repair shop that sets up all the instruments, and perhaps most importantly, a down-to-earth knowledgeable sales staff 
that is there to help you with anything you need from advice on the high dollar vintage instrument that you're looking for right down to what picks you should buy. They're happy to help and they're just a phone call or an internet search away. Go to elderly.com or call them at 517-372-7880 and tell them Picky Fingers sent you. So uh, let, let's go back to, to Jason's playing. What yep. do you think are some specifics that you picked up from him? Yeah, so there's a lot of things. So, so Jason, to try to resist the urge to just say, like, the most hard drivingest right hand, you know, I mean, it right. really is that. It, it absolutely kind of this relentless right hand, no, no matter what he's playing. tempo it is it's very solid very clean getting a lot of tone out of each note uh so so that's you know hard to define but but true um but what i hear when i listen to jason play with junior six but also dan Tominsky now or you know there's a lot of jam videos you can find on youtube that are just like some of the best modern scrug style banjo playing if you search jason davis hmm. you know jam or something like that like it's there's kind of amazing treasure trove of playing What's jam- what a why am I not understanding what jam video? Jam what? video, just just him jamming with his friends. Oh, just Jason, yeah, just Jason and his friends jamming. It's like you know, and they're playing flat and scrugs. And, oh, you know, okay. all this stuff. I yeah. thought this was a certain like category of video that I, I was oh, like, what is, what is yeah, this? no, no, it's yeah, right, just, never mind. Just yeah, just him and his friends just uploading videos. Oh, and, great, uh, and and it's uh, and it's great, and it's it's such a it's such a big sound that he gets out of the banjo. And what I one of the things that I appreciate the most about it is he plays so within his ability, which is incredibly high ability, but he plays yeah. so within it that there's not really any sign of struggle or there's no, it doesn't appear that he's reaching for anything. It's yeah. very solidly exactly what it's supposed to be. Even though he's making choices, he's improvising in terms of his backup and and breaks. It doesn't sound like he's searching for what should happen next. He's He's perhaps has a little restraint. Yeah, he's he's very confident, but also has a little bit of restraint to not say, how far can I push this? Hmm. uh, And then maybe lose the idea or, or fumble a bit or something. And that's, that's a very specific uh, type of bluegrass where people are kind of looking for it to be very simple uh, statements of the melody, kind kind of like really kind of like a, you know, a pop song in, in, the way it's structured, but also the production. You know, if you're if you're jamming, you want it to be clean. You want it to be together and tight. And you're, have you have the hook. Yeah, exactly. You don't really want it to. You don't want to stumble and and mess up the banjo break and and totally. whatever it is. You know, it's 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 a kind of achieving a different thing. Kristen Scott Benson is kind of my other perfect example of oh, that. Right. Where like she doesn't like when I say this, but like you won't f- hear her make a mistake. You just won't. Huh. Uh, you know. You know. On stage, you're watching her. You won't see it happen, you know. Wow. Otherwise, I'm, you know, whatever people do, whatever they do, but she knows what she can do and and what she's going to do, and so does Jason, and that's that's what they do, and so yeah. Um, I'd really love to. I I hope I didn't cut you off. Just not at now. all. Uh, I would really love to go back. You said, you know, the hard hard drivingest right hand yeah. and tone production and stuff, and people can agree 
or not, but in terms of translating that into how did he teach you to work on getting good tone production and power mm. out of your right hand, how do you actually adopt that as an influence yeah. uh, into your own playing? So that's kind of another good example of, of uh, you know, you ask questions that you think are going to get you the answer, and, and it turns out that that's not, you know, there's not a, <laughs> well, you got to do this. You put your hand like this and you, you know. Right, do uh, this exercise for this many minutes Yeah, per day. you know, bend your picks like this, you know. And, and, and this isn't specifically about Jason, but in general, many of the times I got it was like, oh, man, you'll, you'll figure it out. You just, you just keep working. It sounds good. You'll get it, you know, whatever. Which plenty of people could find that frustrating. That's, that's fine. But I, I was kind of too uh, busy trying to figure it out to be frustrated. But I was just like, fine, whatever, I'll, I'll do I'll figure it out then. I'll, I'll figure it. And so, and so what it so was. So you didn't get your answer and therefore me asking you that, I'm also not going to get the well, good answer. Is that what you're trying to? <laughs> hopefully, yeah, hopefully not. Hopefully I can give you some information. Okay. But I will also, you know, preface that by saying you'll get an answer about tone and timing with respect to my ability to even have tone and timing, you know, so bear in mind, this, this is not this, Jason Davis. But this episode's about you. So yeah, right. yeah let's, let's hear it. So, the first thing in terms of like learning, um, one thing that we would do really frequently in these lessons was we would take a Flatt and Scruggs tune, something that the banjo would kick off or has a, you know, somehow tonight or no mother or dad or going to settle down. And we just trade that back and forth. And it wasn't coming up with new ideas. It wasn't, you know, improvising really, maybe playing a couple different versions possibly, but it was really like he would kick off somehow tonight and then I would kick off somehow tonight and we'd, we'd, back each other up, but it was really just the shortest tune jam you could do, but just back right. and forth, like over and over and over again. And while I'm backing up, I'm watching his hand, I'm listening to what he's playing. I'm seeing, you know, with the right hand, you can, you can see so much about someone's economy of motion, how far their fingers move, what angle their picks are at, all these things that they actually probably, you know, some people think about this and some people try to break this down and some people just do it and you have to kind of pull this information out of them. So not that he's like the primary person necessarily that um, I got what I do from, but I learned a lot just from watching, like guessing about, okay, well, it seems like his hand is kind of like this. And it seems like this is how relaxed his hand is. Like, how can you tell someone how relaxed their hand should be? Um, it's, you know, kind of probably yeah. difficult to do that. So I had to kind of guess, like, okay, is it kind of like that? <laughs> that, that sounds a little bit more like it. That sounds pretty good. And then you record yourself and then you're back in the lesson and you try it a couple more times and you record the lesson where you're doing that back and forth and you try to see what the differences are. Hmm. Um, and it's just this really critical study of, of uh, not guesswork per se, but you kind of know what all the factors are. Banjo, banjo setup, all obviously, but but he would play my banjo and it sounded like him. So right. I was, I would kind of threw that out a little bit as, as the main thing. And one, the biggest thing, I mean, tone, very important, but, as far as timing, that feels a little bit like one that's a little easier to hear specifically what the differences mm -hmm. are. Maybe not be able to say, well, the third note's a little earlier than the other. It's it's not so much that. It's just that's kind of how you can tell Earl and Crow and Ralph and so-and-so apart in some ways is because of that timing. So I would play something and, uh, you know, you know, the, don't take this as an, an impression of, of Jason Davis, but if we're going to play... Um, you know, maybe like gonna settle down. Let's say, let's say he would kick it off. It's 
something like that. Mm-hmm. And at the time, maybe I was doing something like, uh, see if I can if I can even do an impression of of something <laughs> of, of I of something 22 I don't two year old Eli. yeah something I don't want to do anymore. Uh, so it'd be like. Uh, You know, it's kind of like, it's fine if that's, if that's, you hear that and that's what you prefer, then by all means. But like this, this much bouncier, but in a stiff kind of way. And the tone gets a little bit more brash and thin. And okay. this thing where I'm playing all the right notes, like playing all the right notes in terms of traditional bluegrass is not the hard part. You can, you can, you can figure that all out. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's getting it to sound just right. So I would, kind of like a b this thing and listen to him and listen to me you know you know and you hear other things like like when you get up to that hammer on and the way i was doing you know you can just hear the difference in that the way he was doing it or You know, it's like, are you yeah. really hammering that on quickly? Or a little lazy with it? A little lazy with it, which can kind of make the whole thing a little bit sloppy. Yeah. Uh, and the same, there are times for each of those, certainly. But in that kind of tune, you found people really kind of were, were, were quick with it. You know, and the hammer-ons, I would hear. And I was doing a little weak. Yeah. You know, there's right. that's the attitude, that's the blues, that's Earl and Crow and all that stuff. Like that's that's to me what makes this music kind of the you know, this on the banjo bluegrass worth listening to. Yeah. I'm not really interested in you know, it's you know yeah. You know, that's that's for me what it's what it's all about. So Sassy. It, was, it was exactly it was a lot of those things like back and forth, like I would play exactly the notes he was playing, but then I'd watch him and be like, Oh, I just played that, but that's how I should have played that just yeah. now. Yeah, you know? so you're making, ideally, you're making little adjustments each time and maybe yeah. distilling it, it down to, to what it needs to be. Exactly, yeah, and not doing a whole lot of, um, you know, I'm not making the list in my mind of of all the specific things I need to be working on, more like get just getting the experience, so, I'd not, so I'm not thinking about it. So it's, uh-huh. so it's just that's the way that I play the banjo. I think my favorite topic that we covered when I interviewed you for Banjo Newsletter, so I'm going to revisit it because I want to hear it again. Yeah. Uh, I remember you said something, or, or I asked you something about you coming from a jazz background and how I was surprised that that now, and I know you can play jazz on banjo. You, you have videos of like you playing giant steps on YouTube. So it's it's not that you you can't do that, but the the vast majority of what you do is much more in this world of Jason Davis and and JD and and all that. And I was the question had to do with me being surprised that you aren't one of these 
Ryan Kavanaugh e players right. who, who who really lean into the to the jazz aspect yeah. of you know of banjo playing, and I really loved your answer. And uh, do you need to be prompted as to what your answer was <laughs> to get back on track, uh, or do you, do you think you? Uh, I'm curious. I guess I'm kind of curious about about what it is. Uh, uh, you, what you had said was something to the effect of. You always want to use the instrument for what it does best, mm. and y- your opinion was that the jazzy stuff was not the role of the banjo. It was, you know, that that type of stuff is what maybe a guitar or a mandolin could do best, mm-hmm. and what a banjo does best in the context of the instruments that you typically play with. If you're in a, a bluegrassy band, yeah, you have a different uh, job or, or a. Right, a right competitive advantage if you want to look at it like, yeah. like that yeah that's that's uh wow i'm, I'm pretty smart aren't i yeah i um, loved it yeah no so well and, and i'll and i'll depending on on what i said in that interview i'll, I'll kind of uh with the caveat or, or maybe or contextualize a little bit because because uh, you know i live in in two kind of different worlds in my mind musically one is open-minded to the point of like there really are no rules there is no hierarchy of certain instruments or genres or anything that's supposed to be anything. I mean, there was definitely, there was a, there was a long period of time in my jazz uh, interest when I was listening to this free improvised music that a very small number of people would actually consider music. You know, it's, it's, there's, there, there are no limits. So that's like, that's the big picture. But in, in my kind of bluegrass mind, uh, that is how I feel is, is I feel like when I'm listening to bluegrass, specifically more traditional bluegrass, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, rope anybody who's in the progressive bluegrass world yeah. to like change what they're, you know, this is specifically if you're playing the game of bluegrass, which is like, you know, between the years of 1946 and probably like, you know, 1995 or something like that, yeah. you know, something like that, where it's like these bands from Bill Monroe up to like Lunch River Band and Third Time Out and everything, kind of those uh, really seminal records for all those bands. Of course, Bela and all of them were doing all those things mm-hmm. throughout that. But there's this there's this thread of traditional and then traditional plus and then tradi- you know whatever you want to call that, where within that context, if I'm playing nine pound hammer and the fiddle has already played their solo, and the mandolin's already played their solo, and somebody played their Tony Rice guitar solo, then I don't I don't think I want to follow that up with the same notes on the banjo. I want to okay. do a different thing the banjo can do because the banjo can do things obviously other instruments can't do. Um, so maybe I, I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up because now my, my, my revised answer is, okay. uh, is not so much the banjo has a specific role. It's more like the other instruments can't do what the banjo does. So when the banjo solo comes up or when the backup happens, I want to make sure I'm doing the thing that's special to the banjo. The guitar can't replicate the rhythm that the banjo is bringing or the mandolin or anything like that. Sure. You know, of, of course there's the well oiled machine of a bluegrass band that that you can make all the comparisons to a drum set and all these things whatever but but at the end of the day by pure serendipity and not fate or anything like that earl happened to have met up with you know bill and earl and all those people and and all of those things mixed in a certain way there's a million combinations that could have happened that i'm sure would be amazing but it happened to be this one and and i i really appreciate that specific job that the banjo has in that type of bluegrass yeah very cool I know this is a very open-ended and and perhaps difficult question, but are there any other skills or uh, things that you feel like you rely on a lot in your own playing or or 
things that have helped you? I know that's a very mm-hmm. broad mm-hmm. Uh, question, but I guess take it for yeah <laughs> for whatever you totally. No, I mean that's those are the terms that I usually think about because um, it's hard to pin down like very, very specific things that are going to carry you through life or your musical life. You know, you have to have these first principles, I think. Um, and uh, for me, I mean, the the very first one is some sense of perseverance when it comes to studying and practicing and gaining experience because studying is kind of how you learn things and practicing is how you build up the ability to reproduce the things that you've learned and want to reproduce in the future. And then the experience is when you've go on stage and the things you practice don't work out. So you need to go on stage <laughs> 5 million times. And that and, happens to you too. Oh yeah, it sure okay. did. Yeah. Sure did yesterday with uh, Rick Ferris plenty of times. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, no, it happens. Yeah. Um, so, so there's that where hopefully the sense of uh, no matter how disappointed you can be in your practice or no matter how hard it is to learn something or uh, no matter how embarrassing it is to make a, big mistake during the kickoff of a really fast song in front of a big group of people at IBMA. This is hypothetical, right? I have, yeah, certainly couldn't have possibly have happened the second song. <laughs> oh, in the second. I mean, yeah, so it's it's all that kind of thing. If you can have some sort of sense of, you know, there are two realities. One is like, I give up, right? Uh-huh. Or I move forward and I get better because that's what happens if you move forward. So, yeah. um, you know, when it comes to all the things that you practice, practice with the metronome, playing all the recordings, transcribing, learning things, all the things are great. Uh, but if you're not willing to like take a step forward and touch one of those things when it's difficult, then it's just not going to happen. So that's the first, like, that's the the thing that matters the most is just, I'm going to take another step forward and it's do a marathon, not a sprint. Exactly. Kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and beyond that, those are the, those are the little the little things that matter a lot is practicing with a metronome, playing along with the recordings, and transcribing things uh, that players that I like did, uh, and then uh, to some extent using that material that I transcribed either to create new versions of these tunes or whatever it is, or just to to be improvising. So spending time improvising as well. You know, if I'm touching all those bases, then I feel like I'm. You know, that's the mechanism by which you take a step forward. <laughs> right. So that actually kind of segues into the next thing that I wanted to talk about, that a lot of people who are familiar with you already are probably familiar with you because of your online educational uh, type content in which you have like a really uncanny ability to do these. You, you have tons of note-for-note transcriptions and and all sorts of things like that. And that can be really daunting for people, especially banjo by nature. It's just tricky to hear how all those roles work and to get into the nitty gritty. So what advice do you have for people who, who might like to have that discipline and what's your process like for, for tackling those kind of things? Yeah. Um, the, the first thing um, is that like, if we're talking about the fact that it's hard to learn stuff. Uh, it's hard to learn how to play the banjo, um, especially if you show up on some YouTube channel where there's like hundreds of videos of here's how J.D. Crow played this and here's this difficult fiddle tune and all these things that, you know, you might start to think you have some responsibility to learn all of them, you know. <laughs> First of all, you don't. You don't have any responsibility to learn anything. You can, it, you know, yeah. you, you should you should primarily follow uh, your own interests. That's totally fine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's, that's the only way you're going to have any fun doing it. But for me, you know, it's this constant process of bumping up against some discomfort while practicing. Either it's not going the way you want it to go or, 
uh, you thought, oh, I was better at this last week, or it's going too slow, or whatever it is. And when that happens, hopefully I realize, and if I do, then I'm able to get out of it. Hopefully I realize that I'm kind of focusing on the wrong thing. Um, hmm. Because I didn't start playing banjo uh, because I wanted to be the best banjo player in the world or whatever it is. It was, uh, I wanted to play music with my dad and I wanted to, yeah. um, you know, join this community where it seemed like people were having fun playing music. And if you think about it, if you're studying the banjo right now and maybe you're playing in a band or maybe you go to jams and if you go to festivals, you're doing a service to the community by participating. So you should practice and work hard, but at the same time, having a commitment to the role that you play in the community by showing up, by having friends in the, in the community, by playing in these, you know, jams and going to festivals, all these yeah. things, um, that service to the community, to me, feels like I'm doing something more important uh, than, you know, getting really good at the banjo and getting a bunch of cool gigs, which is great. Yeah. It's good. It's just, um, it's not, you know, if, if I had that, it would be on to the next crisis of, well, now I'm not as good as this person and now I'm not as good, you know, yeah. that you can't win that game. So right. I try not to play it when I can, you know, yeah. so I try to play the game, you know, it's, it's all a game, but I try to play the game of, okay, well, if I'm having a really hard time learning this thing and studying this thing, maybe it's not for me, maybe I'll give up. And, uh, you know, at this point you probably have a teacher, you probably have some friends who play music, you probably go to festival, these things don't leave them hanging, you know, like, Go back to where your friends are, and and they want you there. They want you playing yeah. the banjo. They want you doing these things. If you if you like it, if you love it, if, if you've had those experiences, um, focus on those things because that's um, you know that's kind of the music is a tool for helping you have those social relationships and all of those things. Um, but more concretely to the like learning the banjo because yeah. I know you know talk about vague questions and vague answers, but like <laughs> specifically learning the banjo. Small plug, I do have a beginner banjo series for free on my YouTube channel, which mm -hmm. everyone can check out. But in general, with learning the banjo, it's all about connecting the left hand and the right hand to a certain extent. So um, a lot of problems are easily solved by learning the most basic banjo rolls and playing them with a metronome. Uh, and then when you're learning a new tune, either it's from tablature or someone showing it to you or you're learning it by ear, just learn small parts of it at a time. Learn one measure, learn one note and then learn two notes, three notes, whatever you can owe it. This is, this is, you know, to, to distill it down to one thing, you can always play slower. It's always possible to play something slower, which could mean. That's, that's pretty slow. You can always go slow. Right? Like, it, maybe that's harder. But anyway, you can always go slower. You don't have to do it faster. You can always play fewer notes. I don't have to play. I could be like, okay, that's the first note. Great. Okay, I got the first two notes. You can always do that. So it's this process-based thing where, um, you know, you're trying to learn a hundred notes in this tune because there's so many notes. You have to play all of them on the banjo. But you you don't have to be responsible for all the notes when you're just playing one at a time. So just focus on small the pieces. The next one. The next one. Yeah. What's the next thing you have to do? You know, don't look way ahead of yourself. You know, you mentioned how important metronome use is. How do you, in your own practicing, use the metronome? So, um, there's a, there's a bunch of ways that I'll, I'll frequently do it, but 
Um, at the moment, the most frequent, frequent thing that I'll do is have the metronome click on the first beat of each measure. There's so much you can talk about with the metronome, but the way that I generally think about it is the more the metronome clicks, the less responsibility you have for the space in between those clicks. If the metronome clicks every single time you play a note, you know, there's some responsibility. Your hands have to work well enough for you to play at the same time, but you're being, you're given feedback every single time you play a note, whether or not it's correct or not. Cause you'll hear if you're playing a little head or behind, you know, whatever it is, ideally you'll get a good sense for, you know, hearing the difference between the metronome and yourself yeah. and whatever. So if it clicks every time you play a note, then you're getting feedback all the time. And that's usually easier to play along with, but it doesn't necessarily uh, help you develop your own internal sense of timing or muscle memory. It's really a lot about muscle memory, about your hands being somewhat trained to subdivide measure evenly, right? Yeah. The fewer clicks there are when you're using the metronome, the more responsibility you have because there's all this space in between those clicks where you have to, quote unquote, do the right thing. You have to play like the right notes at the right time. Yeah. Um, and you're not going to get feedback about them. So you have to listen to it and see if that's what you like. Okay. You know, if, if the metronome is clicking like... And I'm going... Then there's notes happening in between that there's no click telling me if I'm in the right place. So I could right. play that. Or I could play. I could swing it and the notes that are on the click would line up perfectly. Yeah, so I might say, well, that's great. I'm perfectly in time. But is that the thing that you want to sound like? You have to actually make a decision about how you yeah. want to subdivide that. So if I'm playing. And it clicks like this, you know, if I'm going, uh, here's my human metronome. So if I go click, click, you know, if it's something like that, uh, then I'm responsible for a lot, you know, right. and, uh, you know, the more space you put between those, the more responsibility you have in theory, the more of that muscle memory and internal time that you're developing that is, uh, unrelated to the feedback of the metronome. Yeah. At a certain point, if you get really, really far apart, it's something like 33 beats per minute, uh, then uh, I, there was some study that shows, I don't know if this is literally true, it, it's, it feels very true, at about 33 beats per minute, your brain doesn't hear the clicks as being uh, rhythmic or connected in any way. You're a click, and the next click is so far away that you don't even interpret seems it as like random. A, yeah, it seems random. So, let's say you're playing a tune at you know, some multiple of 33, 120 beats per minute, you oh, know, okay, somewhat relatively fast, but your metronome is at 30 beats 30. per minute, then you're going to get feedback about whether or not that is, you know, in time. Yeah. But, but you're not going to interpret the, the metronome is not going to help you. You're not going to hear it like, like it's a drum beat, an imaginary oh drum beat. God. It's just information. It's just telling you like, yeah, you were right you the four measures lined up or it didn't. So then it's completely just you and you're just being told yes or no at the end of four measures or however <laughs> many measures it is. So you can, you can really expand that to the nth degree. And I know people that practice it with the metronome right. at 10 beats per minute. Um, it's very, very difficult to do, but who it's, are these people? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, they don't play uh, traditional bluegrass, but okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it can be very helpful. I mean, I, I wouldn't suggest like that's the only way to do it. Again, I play with it on the 
first beat of every measure for the most part. That's what seems to get me, you know. Well, you're going to probably be responsible for a a few headaches of mine because now I'm going to have to try this. And it sounds like it might be frustrating. It it can be, but it's very fun. It can be very meditative as well, though. Okay. You know, it it kind of requires a certain amount of focus. You have to really listen uh, to yourself. You have to, you know, be very present. If you start thinking about something else, there's a good chance it's going to fall apart. So, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty telling about, you know, that's the other thing. If you're playing along with a metronome, uh, and you find that it's, it's easy, then there's a good chance that you're not really challenging yourself or you're not really paying attention. And you're kind of in this place where you're, maybe you're, you're working out your hand, the muscles are moving, you know, it's probably of some value. Um, but maybe, uh, maybe not, doing as much as it could forward sure yeah yeah i don't want to let you go without let's uh talk about your instrument and 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 all that what's this banjo that you have so this is a banjo i've only had for a couple months um and it's a 1932 tb1 conversion the the short story of it is uh i got a tone ring um a 20 hole tone ring from uh jerry sloan who um you know, his, his tone rings are kind of the talk of the town these days in terms of um, just their quality. And, and you know, people who want to say, make wild statements will say that they're the most similar to the pre-war rings or, okay. whatever, you know, I'm sure you could get a statement about that for every Almost tone everyone, ring that's ever yeah. been made. Yeah. <laughs> what a coincidence. Yeah. Um, and I don't even, I really don't think in those terms, but uh, I play a lot of banjos with Sloan tone rings that I liked a lot. But anyway, got a tone ring from him and I thought, well, I should probably put a banjo around this tone ring. Oh yeah, you didn't have a choice. I, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, um, and it was I was so close to the rest of the banjo. So, I uh, this was kind of in the midst of the um, this process started in the midst of the you know being stuck at home during the pandemic and all these things where I was just finding myself on page ten of Google search, you know, searching tenor banjo and all these different banjo parts, just seeing what's out there. And I found uh, in some shop in Georgia. You know, this tenor banjo, untouched, basically just... Just TB1? Just TB1, yeah. And uh, uh, got a couple pictures of it, and it looked wow. it looked clean enough, and I took a gamble on it and got a decent price, and it, and it turned out to be in good shape. So, so You I, really did have the tone ring before you That was the, the first banjo? tone ring I had first, yeah. <laughs> I had the tone ring first, uh, and then I had the... Uh, got the pot, got the neck from Jason, actually. Um, this was a Frank Neatneck that he had made couple years ago and it ended up just not being on a banjo at the time so i got lucky that that he had that right tailpiece i got uh from uh my buddy gabe hirschfeld yeah great banjo player um it's a pre-war presto but uh he had gave me a couple options and the one he that i that i chose is one that says uh vega phone on it because it's got the neat engraving on it so I, okay. I, I will always take the the more bizarre and yet you know good, right, good right. part that you want um, and so that's what I end up with that. And then it's got a Silvio Freddy, uh, bridge on it, Scorpion, Scorpion bridge. Yeah. That, that's been a favorite for a couple of years now. So wonderful. How about like any setup preferences in terms of head tension and then, uh, maybe take us through picks and, and anything else that you're, uh, partial to. Yeah. Um, so for, if I'm, if I'm playing this banjo and I'm playing bluegrass, um, then I'm keeping the head at between a G sharp and an A somewhere right now it's about a G sharp, but a sounds great. It's it's um, it really responds pretty well if you do that. Um, you know, it can be a little bit of a brittle sound sometimes if you do that, but but I find it cuts really well in a microphone. Sure, uh, with that in an A um, tail piece. Tail piece is pretty low, not quite touching the tension hoop, but it's not far off. It's it's pretty low, not not crazy. Okay. But um, and then 
try to keep the neck relatively straight. Really don't want too much of a bow in there um, just to keep it relatively even across the the fretboard. Um, I don't want to deal with too much variation in, in action. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, and other than that, I don't really do anything too specific. You know, in terms of the, the this is something I picked up from Gabe, but in terms of the coordinator rods, like putting the banjo together, all that stuff, there's more to it, but a lot of it is like, you don't want to crank any of that stuff. You don't want to be cranking on bolts and nuts right. and rods and anything like that. You kind of just want it all to fit together solidly uh, and just go a little tighter than, you know, yeah. finger tight on a lot of that stuff. Um, just no added tension to re restrict yeah, um, yeah. anything that's happening. Yeah, I mostly find that really any part on a banjo, if you're tightening it a lot, uh, like, like, you know, <laughs> that's not good. It just, it just never ends right. up with a big tone. You end up with maybe a loud instrument sometimes, but it just really, you know, you know, of course, if you've got an art shop and you're doing the Stanley thing, then yeah, get the head up to B, yeah, B, crank or, it down. B or C, like that's the sound. Sure. But, but if you're playing a flathead and you want it to be anything resembling anything from Earl to Bela, then you're not tightening anything a lot. <laughs> right. Right. You mentioned it cuts through a microphone pretty well. Do you, do you use a specific microphone for either performing or recording? Um, I will frequently use a Neumann uh, KM-184, um, small diaphragm mic for, for live, for live uh, and, and, and um, recording my videos in studio. I'll, I will frequently defer to, uh, to the, you know, the shotgun. Well, just whatever, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm recording or something for, a, for someone else, then it'll be... Oh, whatever they okay. prefer or the engineer or something they you know i trust that 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 they really know what they're talking about compared to me i, I i've taken some good recommendations from people about microphones but i don't uh, i don't have a lot of that info for myself so i trust that you know the neumann Just roll with it neumann always works yeah but i also say i got a um akg uh it's a uh i think it's akg the um c3000 oh large sure. diaphragm yeah. one yeah some of them not great if you get the one with the green stripe around it those are great. Those are the older ones. Um, oh, interesting. They're like 150 bucks and they sound great. So yeah. a lot of my videos, I use that mic as well. Okay. And I'll bring that and use that on stage and no, no problems. Yeah. Cool. Tell every, I, I know you have a, a real huge online presence and everyone should definitely check it out. There, there'll be more information on there that you could possibly uh, digest, but there, that also means there's something for everybody i think so tell everyone how to find you on all the places that you can be found yeah so uh the main platform is youtube and mm -hmm. if you search eli gilbert on youtube at this point i've uploaded so many videos that you're going to be yeah. inundated with <laughs> a ton of content but right. if you go to my actual youtube channel you know i guess youtube.com slash eli gilbert or um you know you'll find it if you've ever used youtube before but um, there are various playlists that are anything from absolute beginner lessons to transcriptions of J.D. Crow, transcriptions of Noah McKelney, Bela Fleck, um, you know, a, a pretty Don Reno, a very wide range of things that I've studied over the years that are just the things I'm interested in. And, and then I share a little bit about how to do that or rolling backup, authentic backup, all that stuff. So that's YouTube. And then Patreon um, is uh, where you can find a ton of tablature, uh, just all bonus content. There's just everything extra, you know, so the, so a lot of it's on YouTube. And then if you're, if you're serious, then Patreon's the spot to get the, the, the other, good stuff, the good stuff. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Private reserve. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Here's how JD Crow really did it. Right. <laughs> no, no, but that's great. Okay. Well, that's, that's definitely highly recommended by me. I don't think you'll be a stranger to many of the listeners, but 
yeah, just in case, definitely make sure you check that out. So Eli, thanks for welcoming me into someone else's hotel room. That was nice of you. Of course. Anytime. (laughs) You can hang out at my friend's hotel room anytime. That's going to do it for today's show featuring Eli Gilbert. Thank you so much for listening. The sound clips you heard in this episode were Naughty Pine by Eli Gilbert, Colorado Turnaround by The Seldom Scene, All the Things You Are by The Rosenberg Trio with Louis Van Dyke, Bootleg John by Jason Davis, and an excerpt from Eli's Giant Steps video. Don't forget to go to banjosummit.org to sign up for this upcoming Banjo Summit coming February 11th through 13th. And of course, extra special thanks to listener Ken Norkin for being the Patreon supporter of the show. Head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to pitch in a couple bucks per month and uh, help keep this show up and running. That's going to do it for me. I will see you all next time. (laughs) 